us in all of its fullness. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to hear it, to receive it, to walk in it. Father, there's so much that could possibly distract us this morning. Uh, Things without, things within, uh, even Satan himself. And so, Father, we stand uh, uh, before your word, trusting that it indeed is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. And so we pray that your power through your word would conquer any fear in us, would conquer um, any anxiety in us, would conquer any temptation in us. And so, Father, work in us by your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 8. I want to begin a reading with verse 5. Acts chapter 8, uh, beginning with verse 5, please. And I'll read through verse 25. There are really two sermons in this text this week and next, as you might suspect. Um, There is this person named uh, Simon, who's quite interesting. We'll pick him up next week. Uh, This week we'll pick up um, the delay in the coming of the Spirit. So please uh, hear the word of God. Uh, Let me actually begin in verse 4. Now those who were scattered when about preaching the word... Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be, may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I confess to you that this passage, at least for me, is one of the most startling in all the Bible. 
It isn't startling because of this man, Simon. We would expect that when the gospel is preached, when the gospel comes to a place, there will be counterfeits. And we understand the occult and we understand uh, what Simon was trying to do here and, and how he kept these people amazed by his tricks. Uh, so that doesn't really surprise me. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that when Philip went in the power of the Spirit in these days uh, to pro, uh, proclaim the kingdom, that uh, there were signs and wonders taking place. Uh, that uh, those signs and wonders were not ends in themselves, but they were to point to the message that Philip was proclaiming, that the kingdom of God had come in Jesus. And when we speak of the kingdom of God, we're speaking of God's authority, God's kingship. And what Philip was proclaiming is what Isaiah said would come and what Paul speaks about in Romans 10 is the good news that our God reigns. And he reigns over life and death. And he reigns over this earth. And so when the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, what is being preached is the authority of God through Christ. That he has come and he's, he has authority over life and death. And he has authority over all things. And thus there's salvation by faith in him. Salvation meaning that um, there's wholeness that comes through faith in Christ. Because he has authority to give life. And in his authority to give life, of course, that brings forgiveness of sins as we trust in him. That brings what we call justification. Meaning that because of Christ, God is able therefore and willing therefore uh, to declare us righteous in his sight. Not a righteousness of our own, of course, but Christ's righteousness. He came and lived perfectly for us. And so trusting in him, identifying with him, means that the blessing of his righteousness is ours. And the blessing of his death is ours. That is, that we died with him. Thus, when he died to sin, we died to sin. And the penalty of our sin upon him then was accepted by God, paid for. Therefore, he could declare us forgiven. United with Christ, of course, he has authority, therefore, to adopt us into his family, to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, the Apostle John says. To them, he, came, he, he gave the right, the authority to be called children of God. And so we're adopted. And then, of course, we're sanctified. That is, this a process begins at that point to make us holy, righteous, even as we live out our lives. And it brings with us what we call glorification. The day coming when we, when we enter into the immediate presence of God. And the day coming when our redemption will be complete. Because at the return of Christ, we'll receive new bodies. There'll be a new heaven and new, new earth and all of that. So it includes all of that. And it can include all of that because Christ reigns, because he has authority to grant all of that. Who else has authority to grant all of that? And so when the good news of the gospel, the gospel meaning good news, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, as it was by Philip, he was preaching all of that, the authority of God through Christ to give life, the authority of God through Christ to save, the authority of God through Christ to justify and to adopt and to sanctify and to glorify. He was preaching all of that. So it doesn't surprise us then that when Philip preaches all of that 
that it's accompanied by signs and wonders because in these days, as the gospel was moving out into different places, these signs and wonders came to say, to say, look at the authority of Christ. When he comes into the very presence of demons, they're gone. When he comes into the presence of sickness, it's gone. You may say, well, why doesn't that continue in these days? And that's bigger than I can get into today. So just hold on to that one. Now, uh, so that doesn't surprise us that, that signs and wonders happened when Philip went down there. Two things really surprised me and startle me as I read this passage. One is this person, Simon, uh, because it says in the text that he believes. And yet, as we get down to the end of the passage, we realize no, it doesn't appear as if he believed at all. And so that's surprising. And, 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 and what all that is about and how we can understand that, that's next week. So you have to put that one on hold too. But the second thing that surprises me that we actually will take up today is this delay in the coming of the Holy Spirit after the bulk of these people in Samaria believe the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what startles me. Because if I had been reading the Bible from Genesis up, into, up through Acts chapter 7, I would never expect anything like that. Because as I'm reading through the Old Testament, I'm getting a glimpse that a day is going to come when the Spirit of God will fall upon His people in a new and special way. I get that impression from the prophet Isaiah. I get that impression from the prophet Ezekiel who says that a day will come. When God will take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh and he will pour out his spirit upon them and enable them to walk in God's ways. I get that from the Apostle Joel who says that a day is indeed coming when the spirit of God will be poured out and all the sons and daughters of, 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 of God will prophesy and speak the truth of God. And so I'm expecting all of this. And then of course when Jesus comes on the scene he only, he only whets our appetite even more. Because you remember on the night that he was betrayed, we read some of this in our responsive reading this morning from John chapter 14, 15, 16. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. And he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. In fact, I'm going to send to you the promise of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit. This one that you've been looking forward to as you've been reading and understanding through the prophets. And so he tells them about the Holy Spirit who is to come. And he says, he will be with you and he will be in you. And he says, he will bring the very presence of the Father and Son to you to dwell in you. And he will teach you all about me. And to remind you of all the things that I've taught you. In fact, he'll, he'll tell you things and, and reinforce things that, that will enable you and thrust you forth to be my witnesses. And then we come to the book of Acts. And Jesus makes that, that, that promise to his disciples. Go, wait in Jerusalem. For the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And so again, we, we have this anticipation, this expectation. The Spirit of God comes. And then in Acts chapter 2, He does come on this, this famous feast day in ancient Israel called Pentecost. And, and He comes, this promised Holy Spirit. And there's no question about it. Kaboom! On the very disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> and then Peter preaches a sermon after that. And he describes to them what has taken place. And when they say, what must we do to be saved? Peter gives them this promise. He says, repent, be baptized. Repent, believe. And you'll receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. 
and they believe it, and, 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 and you expect then, therefore, that they received the Holy Spirit, that he would have fallen upon them. Now, we don't read any of the dramatics that happened earlier in that passage when the Holy Spirit first came, but, but we don't really expect all of those dramatics at that point in time. Because in that big kaboom of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we would expect something like we saw, but, but, but not necessarily subsequently. And so we don't read anything. We just, we just assume that the Holy Spirit fell on those believers who responded to the message that Peter had preached in Acts chapter 2. And then as we read from uh, in chapters 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, we read that more were added to their number. And we assume because of the promise that Peter had made, because of the promise that Jesus had made, because of the promise that we had received from the Father in the Old Testament, we assumed that the, the Holy Spirit had come upon them as well. And, and we have no reason to think any differently. And then we come here. And, and we come and we realize that the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God was preached by Philip in Samaria. And it wasn't preached effectively. We, we have no reason to believe that he preached it defectively, that he left something out of that. It says, in fact, even in verse 14, that the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. That's exactly the same language that's used in Acts chapter 2 of those people who responded to Peter's sermon, that they received the word of God. It's exactly the same language that we read in Acts chapter 11 of the, of the Gentiles. They received the word of God. And in both instances, we have no question that the Holy Spirit fell upon those people, came to those people, was involved in all of that. And so it isn't a defective gospel, it doesn't appear. It seems that their belief was belief, real faith in Christ. They have questions about Simon, but... But there was a delay. And then as we continue to read through scripture, uh, we, we don't see this delay anymore. We get to Acts chapter 10, and, and Peter goes to the Gentiles, and he preaches to them in the household of Cornelius. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And there's no question about that. And then they're baptized. So it isn't connected to water baptism in any particular way because the household of Cornelius, they got the Holy Spirit before they were baptized and all of that. There's no question about that. In Acts chapter 19, Paul comes upon a group of people who, who claim a certain belief in Jesus, but they've not received the Holy Spirit. But, but that's a different situation. It's different because they had only been baptized into the baptism of John the Baptist. And they were still anticipating the Christ to come, if you will. And so it's a very different situation. We read through, we read through the epistles of the New Testament. And nowhere do we find the expression that, oh, what you are lacking is what took place in Acts chapter 8. The Holy Spirit hasn't fallen upon you. And with all the trouble that the New Testament church experienced, sometimes people ask me, People say to me, I want our church to be a New Testament church. I don't. You want to be Corinth? Uh, you want to be Galatia? You want to be all these places? I mean, we have all those troubles. Uh, but, uh, so I guess we are. But with all the trouble that took place in the New Testament church, you'd think if what was lacking 
was this second experience, this coming of the Holy Spirit in this kind of way as it did in Acts chapter 8, that what really the, a church had as its problem was the same issue here, that there was a delay, that, that they believed in Jesus and were baptized, but, but, but the Holy Spirit had yet to fall upon them. You'd think if that was in any way, shape, or form normative for the church, somebody would have mentioned it. That somebody would have said to the church in Galatia, hey, this is what you need. Or somebody would have said uh, to the church in Thessalonica, this is what you need. Or especially Jesus would have said as he walked through the churches uh, in, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, many of whom had significant issues. Significant issues that if it were me writing about it or speaking to them, I'd say, I think you need the Holy Spirit. Jesus never mentioned that. And so this is it. And that's why it's startling. Why this, why this delay? And, and in some sense, this isn't simply an academic question. It's a very significant, practical one. Because if there is this possibility of a delay between when one believes and when the Holy Spirit comes to them, then we'd be irresponsible not to try to find a way to make certain that never happens. It would be irresponsible of us as a church and ministry, as a community of people together, to not think that through and say, who among us believes that the Holy Spirit has not fallen upon you? Because can you imagine, how could you live? How could you live out the calling of a follower of Christ without the Spirit of God? How horrible that would be. And so it isn't an academic question at all. So the question for us is, is this sort of two-staged Christianity, two-staged process normative at all for Christians? And, and if it is, does that mean there are some like ordinary Christians and then there are saints? Or there's sort of ordinary Christians and then there's this group of super spiritual Christians over here who've received this experience? And, and so it's a very practical question. Not an easy one, but a practical one. So think with me. Um, I've been gone a long time, so I'm going to try to get this done in the next 15 minutes. But when you haven't preached for five weeks, it's very tempting just to go on all day. But my throat won't let me do that. I'm out of shape. <clears throat> now think with me about this. Let's just take a look at the facts. Let's take a look at what we know. Because Luke gives us pretty much no help here. He doesn't give us an explanation. He doesn't describe for us what's taking place. So it's always dangerous when you read through a, a narrative passage, when you read through an incident in the scripture, and there is no explanation as to why what took place took place. So we have to infer, all right? So we're trying to infer from our knowledge of the whole of scripture. That's why I just took us through that exercise to say, where else in scripture do we find such a thing? And we don't. Where else in scripture do we find something like this described? We simply don't. And so we have to infer from, from what we have. And so let's, uh, let's just look at the facts. You remember the old Dragnet series. Some of you are too young for that. But maybe you've watched it on Nickelodeon or saw the movie that came out some years ago. Joe Friday always would simply say to the person, usually a woman who was in tears, and in a very male, objective voice said, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, which meant stop crying. Uh, but anyway, he wasn't your pastoral type. Uh, but, but just, you know, what do we know? We know this. We know that Jesus made the promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
that they would be his witnesses. This wasn't a command as much as it was a declaration. It was a statement of fact, a statement of truth. They would be his witnesses. And they would witness in Jerusalem, which would not be surprising because that's where they were. And because really in their minds still, that is the minds of these early apostles, in their minds there was such a connection between Judaism and Christianity that to preach it in Jerusalem would make perfect sense. But then he said in Judea, that would make sense, still related. But then Samaria, we'll talk about that in a minute, that would probably make no sense. And then to the ends of the earth. And so that was the promise uh, of Jesus. We see then in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 of Acts that this good news is in fact preached in Jerusalem. We see that at the end of chapter 7 that this uh, one named Stephen, who is a Hellenistic Jewish Christian, meaning that he wasn't a Hebraic Jewish Christian, meaning that he probably had, or his family had come from outside of Jerusalem, Greek-speaking, and had therefore not all the Jewish heritage and Hebrew heritage that those who lived in Jerusalem would have, be way more accustomed to be worshiping God outside of a temple context, way more used to worshiping God outside of the Hebrew language, and so even wouldn't be well received by Hebrew Christians. So Stephen and all those guys, Stephen, you remember, um, gets stoned, not in the 1960s sense, but in the first century punishment, death sense, and he's killed and when he's killed, a great persecution takes, out, takes place, probably uh, among the Hellenistic Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and they are scattered. The apostles, being Hebraic Jewish Christians, uh, don't leave Jerusalem. Nobody's as upset with them over this issue as with these Greek-speaking uh, Christians, Jewish Christians, and so they're scattered. Philip is one of those. And so he finds himself in Samaria. That's all true. We know that to be factual. We just have to read the text and we come to that. He comes to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. When he does, it appears that many in Samaria believe, authentically believe. Now, then we come to verse 14. And the passage says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, we don't know how they got that word. It's not like somebody emailed them. Uh, it wasn't on the news. So we don't know how long that took. We don't have any of that information. But they heard that the Samaritans had received the truth and believed. So they sent Peter and John. Now why exactly they sent Peter and John, we don't quite know. We don't know that... They sent Peter and John because they heard that the Holy Spirit had yet to fall on them. We don't know if that was information they received or information they came to learn when they came down. We don't know if they came down as an inspection team. Let's see what really happened here. Uh, uh, and to inspect. We just simply know they came down. Either of those two things could be true. They could have been an inspection team. They could have heard that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them and that was unusual. So they went down to check it out and maybe they even had a leading from God to say we can lay hands on these people and they'll receive it. We don't, we don't know that. We don't know exactly why they went. We simply knew that they, they did go. And we do know that these people believed 
And yet the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them. And so the question for us is why? Why hadn't the Holy Spirit come upon them? And of course, we're speculating because Luke doesn't tell us. But as we put those facts together and we think this through through the whole context of Scripture, let me suggest this. That the, de- the delay in the coming of the Holy Spirit to these people in that way wasn't because of them, wasn't because of the Samaritans, but was really because of the apostles, really about because of the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, if you've worked your way around the Bible at all, you know that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. I don't know what groups of people that you know in the world today who hate each other, but the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other uh, like no two people have hated each other. And it stemmed back centuries. You might remember that in about the 10th century BC, there was a split in Israel, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then in about the 7th century B.C., or 8th century B.C., the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom. And when they did, they had this strategy of destroying a culture, and it was very effective. And the strategy of destroying the culture was to integrate their culture with the people they captured. So some they exiled out of the northern kingdom into other places to to intermarry and intermingle into that culture. And they moved people into the northern kingdom, uh, the Syrians, so that they would intermingle and intermarry, so that after a couple of generations of that, the culture of the northern kingdom of Israel would be gone. Now, the southern kingdom held on a little longer, and they always thought themselves, therefore, to be a little bit superior because they didn't have that sort of intermingling and intermarrying. And so conflict began between these two groups, one of Jews plus Assyrians and the other of more pure Jewish people. And wars took place between the two. There was, when the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem under the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, people from the northern kingdom fought against it. In fact, in the northern kingdom, there was built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. And that angered the southern kingdom Jews tremendously, as you might expect. And then over the period of centuries, there was conflict between the two. In fact, you might remember two incidences in the life of Jesus concerning the Samaritans that help us with this. One is that when Jesus met this woman at a well in Sychar, in Samaria. And she said to him, Why do you, being a Jew, ask me for water? It was like, why are you even talking to me? And then John, kind of parenthetically, in John chapter 4 says, Because the Jews despised the Samaritans. (laughs) So he said, just in case you don't know the culture here, uh, that's why. And then there was another incident in the life of Jesus. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, and to get there he had to go through Samaria. You can find this in Luke chapter 9. And as, as, um, so, so Jesus sends out a group of disciples to make preparations for him to be able to get through and to stay perhaps even in Samaria. But when the Samaritans learned that Jesus was going to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, they refused him entry. So the Apostle John, of Peter and John fame, 
said to Jesus, Can we call fire down from heaven upon their heads? And Jesus said, No. But that was the relationship, see. Now can you imagine what it must have been like for the apostles in Jerusalem to hear that these despised Samaritans had come to faith in Jesus and now were one with them. I see, God has never had a desire to have two churches, a church in Jerusalem and a church in Samaria. Now, different churches are different and all of that, but we're really one in Christ Jesus. In fact, when we say the Apostles' Creed, and we didn't say any creed today, and it threw you off, didn't it? Um, we've only been doing that for the last couple of years, but you guys are in the habit, so I just thought I'd break that habit today. Um, we'll get back to it. We say the Apostles' Creed, one of the lines is, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're not saying that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. That's kind of an oxymoron, because the word Catholic means universal. It means there's one church of the Lord Jesus made up of Baptists and Presbyterians and Independents and this and that and the other thing who profess faith in Jesus. All right? And so, so God's always at work to humble us and to say, these people over here who are different than you culturally and otherwise, these people over here that you may not like, I can save them too. And when I do, they belong to you. It's the old, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives kind of thing. And so here they are. And so it would be so astounding to these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that the Samaritans could come to faith. That Peter and John are sent. Now you remember, we'll get to Acts chapter 10, and we get to Acts chapter 10, in order to get Peter to go into the house of a Gentile, a non-Jew even further away than the Samaritans, he has to receive a vision from God. And then he's still not quite sure what this is all about. So Peter and John are sent. And when they're sent, it's undeniable. It's undeniable that these Samaritans believe because the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the same way that he came upon these apostles in Jerusalem. And so it's completely undeniable. And so they go back preaching the gospel in Samaria, going, okay, I guess it's real. I guess God can save Samaritans too. And so there's the delay. And so I would suggest to us that it, we shouldn't be looking for some second work of grace. We shouldn't be thinking that when a person comes to faith, you shouldn't be thinking when you came to faith that you need this extra thing to take place. We shouldn't be thinking that there are two tiers of Christians, that, that, that one has it and one doesn't. That way we can avoid all the pride and all the jealousy that that kind of thinking breeds. But what we must understand is that God saves people. And when he does, we're joined together. They're joined together with us. So that, of course, when we try to build a church, and this is something that we're trying to do here desperately, and some weeks it works, and some weeks it doesn't, and some years it goes better than others, and sometimes people get frustrated and leave, and other times people come because of this. But we're trying to develop a church with all kinds of people, all different ages, 
So we don't have 14 different services, one for this group and one for this group and one for this group and one for this group. There's stuff in our service that you'll like and stuff that you won't like because it may not fit your culture, your tradition, your background, your age, your likes. That's okay. Wait a while. Your likes and preferences will change. You'll get old. Keep waiting to get young. Um, It's sort of like all the stuff, if you're married, all the stuff you picked out, put on your registry and got, when you were married, all that, all that, all that uh, china and all those glasses and all that silverware that you now hate. Don't worry, it'll all change. Um, but we're trying to do that. We're trying to be a church where rich and poor worship together. Because that's what the body of Christ is. One shouldn't say, I can't go to that church because my boss goes there. One shouldn't be able to say, I can't go to that church because my employees go there. Or my professor goes there. Or my students go there. Or they live over there. Or they look like this or they look like that. See, what's normative for us, what joins us together, is our faith in Christ and the very presence of Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. What's normative for all of us is that the Holy Spirit is in us and with us. And the scripture is clear about that. For instance, in Acts and chapter 8 and verse 9, I'm sorry, not Acts, Romans, chapter 8 and verse 9, we read this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so you see, it's impossible now. There was a reason for it to that first moment in Acts chapter 8. But, but no real good reason for it now. And so Paul is able to say in Romans that if you belong to Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That shouldn't be a question. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians um, in chapter 6, in verse 11, he puts it like this. And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, where Jesus is, His Spirit is. Because you see, the Holy Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to bring Jesus up close and personal to us. And so, where the presence of Christ is, there's the very presence of the Spirit. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, we read this earlier in our responsive reading. And in verse 13, In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so you see, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You see, the very presence of the Holy Spirit in us is is God's deposit. It's his down payment. It's his guarantee. He says, the Spirit of God is with you. And that's the guarantee that I'm good for all my promises. That's the guarantee that you really do belong to me. That's the guarantee that Christ really is with you and really is in you. But having said all that, I don't want us to miss this point. That because the Spirit of God is in us, we should be seeing and experiencing His presence. 
we should be experiencing the joy that they experience. We should be experiencing measures of peace. We should be experiencing measures of holiness being developed in us by the very presence and the very power of God. That should be true. It isn't that we just sort of believe and ho-hum it the rest of our lives. There really should be a change in us. And there really should be a, a sense, again, not ooky-spooky sense, it isn't that I'm hearing voices, it isn't here that, that I'm driving down the street and God's saying, go there, go there, go there, although I must confess this morning I prayed that way. Oh my goodness. I get here really early and, and, I, and, and I dress in shorts and t-shirts in the summer and jeans in the winter. And so I was getting in the car and I put my suit, I hung it up in the car and my shirt and my tie. But like some of you do, you know, you, I put my shoes on the top of the trunk thinking, I'll get those in a minute. But when I got to the church, I noticed there was one shoe on the trunk. <laughs> so I backtracked at five o'clock in the morning. You live in that neighborhood and saw this car going back and forth slowly with the bright lights on. That was me. And I kept praying, oh God, you know where my shoe is. These shoes cost $130. I don't want to have to buy it. I only wear them once a week. Uh, third trip around, I found them. Anyway, I, don't, I, don't, I attribute it to God because I'm grateful, but, but I don't know that that's really an application of this. But, but, but we should know the very presence of God with us. We should see a difference in our lives, in our character in the way we handle life. And we should, we should know that because the Spirit of God is in us, we don't need to be anxious. Now, we are anxious. And when that anxiety comes, where do we take it? And why do we take it there? When that anxiety comes, don't we recognize, God is with me. And doesn't that help? Well, you may need to say that 6,000 times a minute some days. But you go there with that anxiety. You go there with that worry. You go there with that need. Why? Because you know something. And you may not be able to explain it to someone else. You may not be able to convince somebody else of it. But you really do know that God is here. And that you trust Him no matter what you're seeing. And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And we mustn't miss the fact that we're to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 Don't be filled with wine but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you may say, well that's a silly prayer, isn't it? Because once I pray it and once I'm filled why do I need to pray to be filled anymore? And I think our problem with that expression is that when we think of being filled we're thinking of a glass of water and once it becomes full of water then it's full but that isn't how the Spirit of God works. When we're praying for the filling of the Spirit, we're praying that He makes the glass bigger. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 119. I'll tell you what verse when I get there. Psalm 119, verse 29. The psalmist writes this, he says, Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before you. 
I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Some of you, if you have a new international version, it will read, for you have set my heart free. They mean the same thing. To enlarge is to increase the boundaries, to set it free. And so when we're praying, the Spirit of God fills us with praying. Enlarge me, increase me, improve me, if you will. Expand my ministry. Give me power to, to witness in your name. Give me more power to, to be the person you want me to be. Mature me, grow me up, fill me. Uh, uh, enlarge my heart. For a believer in Christ, let me encourage you not to worry about where the Holy Spirit is. If you're a believer in Christ, He is in you and with you. And if you're a believer in Christ, let me encourage you to pray that God will enlarge your capacity for the presence of His Spirit within you. That He'll enlarge your heart that he'll expand your power to witness, that he'll make you more bold, that he'll give you more confidence, that he will grow up his character in you in new and more mature, more significant ways than ever before. That is what should be on our minds. And in our prayers, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that for me, I pray that for all of us, that we wouldn't be fretting about a second experience, that we wouldn't be fretting about who has what, but we would trust that we're all in this together, and we would trust we all belong to you who profess faith in Jesus, and that you would indeed enlarge our hearts, fill us, increase our capacity to receive all that you have for us. And that we wouldn't pray for a second experience, but God, a continual experience of the presence of the Spirit. A third and fourth and fifth and 75th and 150th. Holy Spirit, work in us deeply. Empower us. Expand our witness mature our character to be that of Christ's. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. The Apostle Paul says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean that no one can utter those words except by the Holy Spirit. People can say that. It's not our Jesus is Lord. Anybody can say those words if you have a tongue and lips and all the requisite stuff to be able to speak. What he says is that nobody can rejoice in it. No one can say, this is really true of me, that Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit, because it's only by the Holy Spirit that we come to enter into the authority, the rule of Christ and delight in it. So if you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit has come upon you. 
And you can say, Jesus is Lord, and say, Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.